Grotto Pod. I am in the Grotto Pod along with Bridget Quinn, author. We're all here in the Grotto Pod. It makes me laugh every time you say it. It sounds so... It just it makes sense. It rolls off the mm, tongue. I'm I'm for it myself, but yeah, if thanks. If you were Bridget Quinn Barista, it wouldn't be the same. <laughs> Although there is that nice, uh, what do they call that? Uh, consonance, assonance, alliteration. Alliteration, Bridget Quinn. Sorry, Barista. Studied or studied taught history, not English. I just want to point that out. I taught English. Right I know. Here, raising my and you have an MFA, so you knew I didn't. Mm, there I we told are. you though. It's an MA, not an MFA. Oh I yeah. Didn't stick around for the MFA. Okay, sorry. Our guest today. Oh, this is such a long time. You know why MFAs are good? Why? Terminal degree. Yes. Well, it almost killed me, but it wasn't terminal. <laughs> um, our guest, this is such a long time coming. I know. It? I'm so excited. I'm a little nervous. I'm a little nervous, too. Our guest today is Beth Weingartner. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because she is an integral part of the Grotto Pod team. Oh, my gosh. Beth is who makes it happen. You know one of the reasons I'm nervous about having her here? Why? Smarter than us. Definitely... Um, I would say, ah, I, you know, what? I'm going to say it now and I'm going to say it again when she gets here. I took this, these notes. Oh yeah. If you, if you go to Beth's Twitter page. Yeah. First of all, she has one of check marks. I'm sorry. Not oh. Twitter page. Beth's, um, LinkedIn page. Right? Oh. Here's her description of herself and you tell me how accurate it is. Okay. You ready? Mm-hmm. High quality, low maintenance, Independent editor and reporter. Oh my God. Is that the most She's accurate amazing. description? <laughs> yes. Oh, I need my notes. Beth is has a partner, but otherwise she'd be the perfect partner. Yeah. Because she's so low maintenance. But sometimes, as a result, I feel very high maintenance. I know. She does make one feel high maintenance. When she when I get the emails twice a week reminding me to send her. To do the stuff you were supposed to do. Exactly. I know. Same. I feel bad. Sorry, Beth. You're the best. <clears throat> well, so, Beth, I'm going to just start with the writer stuff. So, Beth is yep. a journalist. Uh, yes, I she is. Ju- no, she has written a novel. She has? Indeed, she has. I did not know a this. A fantasy novel called oh, that makes sense. in 2007. Beth has written a ton of books. Oh, yeah. Um, and I would say what characterizes Beth is an inability to hear the word can't. Yes. <laughs> so she's put out books on all kinds of stuff. Uh, the ones I think that, the one the one that got the most traction I think is the Columbine effect. For sure. Uh, and I think that one uh, sort of hints at, at a couple things that Beth has really been interested in. Uh, she is a bit you would never know this by looking at her, but she is a huge metalhead. I feel like because I know that, I can't not see that. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know. It's funny that she's named Beth. Yeah, that's true. Maybe. <laughs> um, so, so the Columbine effect, she took the Columbine uh, incident shootings and took used that as a, as, a, as a way to dive into the way kind of alternative culture teenagers are being treated. And how world. and how teen culture is scapegoated for scapegoated. problems that for. aren't that aren't coming out of things like say metal, which was right when or I video was, games. When I met Beth, so yeah. Beth and I both worked at the San Francisco Examiner. At oh, the did same you know time. her there? We knew each other in passing. Beth knows everyone. She does, but then uh, a mutual friend's like, "Oh, you guys should sit down and, and hang out." And we sat down right when she was working on Columbine Effect and had a spirited conversation about mental health uh, over burritos. Spirited sounds like she disagreed with you. No, she didn't. It was weird. Oh, we, we, we agreed. So uh, sh- her new book is called Tenacity, Heavy Metal and the Middle East, which is a study. It's a little uh, more of like a, a booklet. It's a little book, about 15,000, What I like about this words. is you could carry this anywhere and read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that really dives in. I'm using diving again. Beth does a lot of diving in my world. <laughs> um, the heavy metal scenes in Egypt, 
Syria, um, Poland, and and the challenges faced by, and I'm talking real challenges, not like they're getting made fun of for wearing a Metallica shirt. I'm talking getting rounded up and thrown in jail. I know, like really bad things. Yeah. Uh, she's also written a book called Sacred Sonoma about sacred spots in her beloved Sonoma County. She is a Sonoma County native. Uh, Read the Music, which is a collection of music essays. Beth broke in as a music writer with Addicted to Noise and The Chronicle. I believe she still does music writing. She does still yeah. do music. And it's another thing about Beth is she finds places to publish that I have never heard of. Mm-hmm. She always can find a place to publish. It's really you know what that shows? It shows that you are getting your work out there. Yeah, yeah. She is definitely there's not. There's much. some places she's published you've heard of though, like the New Yorker. Oh yeah, I've heard of that. That yeah. New Yorker. They're pretty good. How many guests have we had now who've appeared in the New Yorker? We're kind of on a three. Run. Yeah. Maybe I can think of two for sure. Two in the last month, which is kind of cool. Yes, very cool. That is, I, you know, I have to say, I think that's one of my life dreams. Getting the New Yorker. Yeah. Used to be one of mine. No more. Oh, really? Yeah, not anymore. I don't know if I have any hope, but I really would like that. Uh, I'm going to hold out hope. Maybe hang out with John Doe. <sighs> that's going to get me in the New Yorker? No, that's life dream. Oh, God, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Squad goals. Right, forgot. <clears throat> uh, Beth is also a news writer, and she mm-hmm. was the uh, sole uh, – what's the word I'm looking for? Editor? No. Stringer? Kind of. No, she wasn't a stringer, <laughs> though. She wrote for Law 360, and she was the only one here. And so she covered some pretty big trials back in the day. Oh, yeah. I remember that. And now she does stuff for The Weekly and The Guardian. And like I said, wherever she can get stuff out, Beth just has pedal to the metal. Uh, (gasps) Pedal to the metal? uh, I see what you did there. Yeah, nice, right? I I can't say enough good things about her. I know. It's the same. She's one of those people who um, if the building were on fire. She would know how to get out. And I had to follow someone, I would immediately turn to Beth (laughs) and say, (laughs) can you get us out of here? And you know what she'd say very calmly? I think I might be able to. I might be able to do that. Yeah, just follow. Yeah. She is – and also the office manager here at the Grotto, so she knows where all the bodies are buried. Okay, first of all, it's kind of a new job. It's kind of a new job. I cannot imagine a harder job. Or a more thankless job. Correct. Oh, also because Beth is pretty tech savvy, everybody asks her for everything Mm because we're – well, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I'm an idiot. And unfortunately, my office is one door down from Beth, so I'm always asking her to do stuff for me. However, it does mean that I'm one of the only people who can get the lock to work. (laughs) I can get the lock to work. Oh, you can? Okay. Oh, yeah. so I like that feeling of power when I get that lock to work. I know. Me too. But it's because Beth set it up for me. How many people do you think forget to close the lock behind them when they leave? Okay. Here's the thing. Most we should them. not talk about this on air. Okay. Nobody forgets that. Oh, good. good. It's automatic. Totally. Totally. <laughs> no, but it really thoughtful is. group of writers. All right. We've talked enough about Beth. Now let's talk to Beth because she's sitting over there in our little Grotto corner security. just waiting. Uh, so let's go get her. Okay. Beth, I can't believe it took this long to get you actually physically into the grotto park. <laughs> but look how prepared you are. Beth is wearing a tank top. I made her. Did you? Oh, okay. okay. I, well, I said, I am taking off my sweat- sweater, and I implied she should take hers off as well. Well, I am a San Francisco, and I know how to layer, so mm, it's true. true. If you leave the house without a jacket and sunglasses, you're a fool. I never in the history of my 20 years in San Francisco have left the house without a jacket. I'm, I'm not sure. I occasionally do, and then I really regret it. Yeah. You panic the whole time. It's only going to take one time. They're like, <laughs> this was a huge mistake. My buddy, Mr. San Francisco, doesn't own a jacket, and he's a native. My brother, who works at a ski hill in Montana, he runs the ski hill, showed me a picture of an X Games jacket 
that we got him in the early 90s, only, like one of the free ones we handed off. He said it's the only jacket he has. He doesn't really need it, he says, but he just likes knowing he That's has it just in case. rugged Montana stuff right there. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about Montana. No. Not today. Although not today. we may touch on we rural do, communities, though. Beth. <laughs> We're here to talk about Beth. Yay. I feel like we have so much stored up that we want to ask Beth to find out what makes Beth tick. But um, I'll just tell you what I said during the intro, which is awesome that I went to your LinkedIn page. And I think you have the most accurate self-describer uh-huh. in the history of self-describers. High quality. <laughs> Correct. Entirely true. Low maintenance. So true. Independent. Yep. Editor and reporter. You are all of those things. And we're going to get to That's your... so no fudging. <laughs> well, yeah. We're going to get to your new book... But I kind of want to work our way there, if okay. that's all right with you. So I think the first thing I want to know is you are from a rural community and how I feel like you have a pretty unique and sophisticated worldview. But I do also feel like it's not unusual for where you come from. Really? Is it? Because that, that part of it, so it's rural Sonoma County, right? Right. Or not that rural, Forestville, right? Well, when I was growing up there, I think the population sign said about – 2,000 people, although I also knew people who worked as census takers in that community, (laughs) and about, you know, a third to a half of them were labeled as unsafe to enumerate because they lived in, like, shacks with their dogs. So you think it's actually 3,000? Maybe. And it might be more now. Uh, Plus all the pot farmers. Right. I think it is more now. But that area, at least my understanding of it has been, it's always had a pretty healthy... um, subsection of city fleers. <laughs> but also artists. Yeah. Well, often the same people. Yeah, true. But how did growing up there really shape the worldview you came up with? And when were you always a metalhead? Well, I, you can't say always because, you know, I was a toddler. Head banging and a young can't, child. At, can't believe this. At some point. Um, but here's a maybe an interesting story. Forestville did not get cable until the late 1980s, so we had no MTV. No MTV. Exactly. Oh, that's interesting. And, no when we, and when we first got MTV, like, that's when the heavy metal bands were starting to get really popular, and they had the head, head, Headbangers Ball and the Hard 60 and the Hard mm-hmm. 30, you know, like, if you get 30 minutes of hair metal every afternoon when you got home from school. <laughs> that um, is, like, terrifying to me. <laughs> and Do it, you consider hair metal heavy metal? It depends on the band. Yeah, okay. Um, a lot of it is technically glam rock and there's sort of a, right. yeah, you know, yeah. there's a spectrum right. between, I mean, cause, well, is T-Rex metal? No, probably not. But is Def, Met- is Def Leppard metal? Yes. Cause they're basically the de- right. descendants of those bands and arguably yes. I don't know why, but immediately I felt that. But I like the timing of that because, so <clears throat> you're, I think at least 10 years younger than me. <laughs> And in my world, we, you know, in Orange County, we got MTV too sweet. Yeah. So we were there starting. And by the time hair metal became a thing, we were so disgusted by it. Of course. I played in a band called Umlaut Frenzy, which was supposed to be a joke about hair metal bands. (laughs) Well, so when I, when we first got MTV, like I remember seeing Megadeth on MTV and going, what is that horrible stuff? I don't get it. But... Over time, like, it started to really click for me. So it wasn't instant, but there were some of those, quote-unquote, softer bands that were really appealing. And then it, my brain, I think, just learned how to translate. It was like it was, an eight-way drug. And it was the music. Yeah. 
Because I know that you uh, spent a lot of your professional career focused on marginalized groups. Mm-hmm. And metalheads were a marginalized group. Yes and no. Um, I mean, they're... Unless you I'll, consider Bon Jovi metal. I'll put on my, my sociology hat for a minute here, but... Please do. Um, you know, it's a subculture like any other subculture. And they they like to think that they exist outside the mainstream, and a lot of times they do. I mean, these are kids that maybe were already feeling like they didn't fit in, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden they found a place where they did fit in. But if you look at metal culture, it rep- it really reflects the mainstream in a lot of ways. There's still a lot of misogyny. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, like, bro culture. Um, there's a lot of racism. And a lot of people in the community don't even want to address that. Like, mm-hmm. along with Gamergate, if we're going to assume for a moment that everyone knows what that is, there was also a Metalgate. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. where people- Recently? The past couple of years. I had no idea. Where people were attacking uh, women like me who write about heavy metal. Oh, that, you know. oh. that makes sense. Um, I just wanted, though, to grab a quote from your new book, mm-hmm. Tenacity, Heavy Metal in the Middle East and Africa, because uh, that brings up an interesting component in terms of racism, in terms of bro culture, etc. But uh, this line, because of metal's ability to express and release negative emotions, it often becomes a kind of medicine for those who love it. That's a nice line. There are actually studies mm-hmm. that people who listen to music like this are generally happier because they're yeah. they're given an outlet where <laughs> they can actually have their feelings. <clears throat> That's, it sounds like my kids saying violent video games are therapeutic. I did write a book on that. Yes. I know you did. <laughs> but he said the same thing. Yeah. Not, we, it makes total sense. Beth and I had already had our sit down at La Cornette about this, so I didn't broach this to him saying, those violent video games, I already knew better. But yes. he came out of nowhere and said, boy, you know, when I'm upset, shooting a few aliens mm-hmm. can really get me out of it. Well, because then otherwise you're getting into road rage incidents in your car or yelling at people in line right. at the store where that aggression totally does not belong. I also think for teenagers, so much um, risk-taking has been taken out of our culture and yeah. we're kind of wired for it so that the just the tension of that builds and builds and builds and you can go a few ways. You can, I don't know, like base jump off a mountain or you can do heroin or mm-hmm. maybe you could get into hardcore music. Yeah. Yeah. What about the writing element? Yeah. Actually, do I want to get there yet? Yeah, let's go ahead. (laughs) And actually, I think it's interesting that you don't describe yourself as a writer on your LinkedIn page, but as a reporter. Mm -hmm. Did you spend a lot of time making that distinction? Is it a meaningful distinction? Um, I just like to be more specific because I think if people hear that you're a writer, they think you're a novelist or a mm-hmm. fiction person. But you are a novelist. Occasionally, yes, but I have not written fiction in a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and also on LinkedIn, like, that's for people to Give hire me. Give me some money. Yeah. Nobody's going to hire me to write fiction <clears throat> oh. when I haven't done it. She wrote poetry in 2013. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but what did you start out doing? In what sense? Writing. Um... I was actually writing poetry, you know, bad poetry at the age of 13 um, and a terrible novel when I was 12. Those are mutually inclusive terms. Yeah, but it was in high school when I joined the school newspaper and they let me write about like heavy metal albums and things like that. so great. Oh, hey, I could get paid money to do this. Did you start reviewing heavy metal albums? Yes. 
I like that. I did um, a Guns N' Roses one and a Queensryche one and a couple other things, and that was in high school. That Guns N' Roses album was a good album. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Did you ever think, hey, this poetry could be lyrics and I'm going to make oh, my own yeah. Band. I never thought about Beth in a band. I, I have. <laughs> I actually tried to write lyrics because in high school I was also writing really bad short stories about, you know, tormented artists. And Where did you ever come up with this <laughs> subject? Yeah, put it, yeah, pin that. I'm going to come back to it. <laughs> okay. But to answer your question, like I tried to write lyrics for them and they were terrible. It's not that like, easy. That's not that my poetry was good either, but I could yeah. tell that my poetry, like there was something there with the lyrics. It was like, this is not working. It's so hard. It is. Yeah. It gives me a lot of yeah respect. Okay. Back to the tormented part. <laughs> yeah. That's what Larry's interested in. And I, I do know a, a through line in, in a lot of your work is, is Looking into marginalized communities mm-hmm. and marginalized people and, mm-hmm. and getting their stories out there. Did you feel marginalized in high school? Um, I don't want to play pop psychologist. No, I know. <coughs> uh, I would say yes oh, and We're no. Um, the high school that I went to was pretty small. It was right. about like 150 kids per grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the kids that I went to high school with, I'd been in school with since like first grade. Right. So, so we there's all knew each no other. no place to hide. There's no place to hide. But also there was no critical mass for any particular mm-hmm. oh. social group. So, for example, the metal kids would hang out with the goth kids, would hang out with the hippie kids because they were all weird but not that differently weird. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you went to L.A., like the oh, metal, completely. metalheads and the punks would not right. mix with We each were other. pretty stratified. It was totally stratified. And down to like these tiny signifiers of dress right. or whatever it yeah. was. That, now, yeah. I would say the upside to that as a teenager is if you have a need to belong – you can belong to a yeah. very specific yeah. little group. And I was also, you know, one of the overachiever academic kids and there was no there was no saying that you could be that but also not be into heavy metal or into goth or whatever. I think that's a really important distinction to make because there was that distinction yeah. where I grew up. You had to be one or the other. Mm-hmm. Except for there was always the one weird kid, you know. Who could do it all? Yeah. That was Beth. We had football players with long hair who, you know, smoked weed behind the the shop after Yeah, we didn't school. have those. Yeah. You were like in uh, one of those movies. What are they? Dazed and Confused. Who's that guy? Rick, Link, Linklater. The Linklater movie. <laughs> yeah. I like that movie. I do too. I really like it. It made me happy when you were saying that. <laughs> that okay, so play. you're like a lot of people though. You are watching MTV, writing poetry, maybe working for your school newspaper. Um, how does that become an entire career? <laughs> and... Say. Where – and I mean I hope this doesn't embarrass you but – and it's a serious question. Where does your otherworldly competence come from? <laughs> that is is that, a that's pop, accurate, right? Uh-huh. Completely. That is a pop psychology question. Um, <laughs> but you are not want, denying that you have otherworldly competence. I want some of it. <laughs> <I know. laughs> then I'll get stuff to you on Wednesday instead of Monday. <laughs> Um, those were two questions and now I've forgotten what one of them was. Oh, we're so bad. The first one was, how did you, how did you translate your high school passions into a lifetime Uh, of work? Or when did you translate it? Well, so after high school, um, I went to Santa Rosa Junior College, you know, wonderful little institution, um, that turns out lots of people that go on to other things. And there was a journalism program there that I just continued with. And then I transferred to UC Berkeley and started working on their school paper, which is where I started getting paid. Um, And then I hooked up with a couple of uh, new online publications. Um, One was called Addicted to Noise. It was the first online Mm -hmm. publication to have 
music online with the reviews, and they invited me to start writing for them, and they paid me too, and it just kind of snowballed from there. And this was was a linear path. There wasn't any going to college and going, I'll major in history, and then I'm doing some writing. This is what you wanted to do. Yeah, and the only reason that I didn't major in journalism at Berkeley was, well, two reasons. My faculty advisor at the JC said, you don't have to study journalism. Do something that fits in with journalism. That's actually so, good advice, I think. Yeah. Um, I did sociology for two years, and that was really helpful. Um, but the other thing was they don't have an undergrad program for mm. journalism. Oh, I have no idea. Yeah, they just have the grad school. So what do people who want to – they do just what you're saying. They study whatever and work on the school paper. Yeah, or they do their undergrad journalism somewhere else and then transfer Got it. there as a But you didn't undergrad. study English. No. I think that's smart. That's like such an oddity here in the Grotto Pod. Everyone's an English major. Not me. Not you. That's true. (laughs) At at the time, it was viewed as kind of a useless. Sociology? No, English. At the time. English. (laughs) I know. Oh, that's. At that one time. That's that's an evergreen um, (laughs) assessment, I think. Um, So, I mean, you know, I'm just wondering if you were reading some of the women who were writing. I remember around the time you're talking about, I was really interested in Ann Powers, and there were some other writers for Spin, especially. I who, already know that Beth's a big Ann Powers. Yeah, ever. I mean, was it? Yeah, how was that? Well, so it's funny you should ask that. Um, right now, I'm reading uh, a book by Evelyn McDonald, mm-hmm. who's also a well-known music writer. Uh, her book is called Mama Rama. It's one of several, but this is her memoir. And oh. so the first piece that I wrote for Addicted to Noise was a review of her, the book that she edited with Ann Powers called Rock She Wrote, which was I remember that. a collection of mm-hmm. essays by women in the music industry uh, about their experiences. And in reading Evelyn's book, I realized that she was a music editor at the SF Weekly in like 1992. And Ann Powers was a music editor there just before her. And I started writing for local publications just a couple of years later. And it starts to feel like, oh, they kind of set it up yeah. to mm-hmm. make it easier for people like me to start making money writing about mm-hmm. rock music. Which is a funny way to put it because I'm sure that wasn't what they were thinking while they were doing it. No, they probably not. They were just doing not. their thing. Yeah. But it does work that way, right? Like as soon as you have a woman reviewer, it becomes possible to have women yeah. reviewers, yeah. even completely not noteworthy. Yeah. Um, so you are doing this kind of writing around the time that the internet's really starting to become a booming thing in San Francisco before the first, what do they call it? The first bubble? What do the they call it? The first dot com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, not bubble. So we're, what I'm whatever. asking is, were you rolling in dough? Ooh, Beth rolling in dough. <laughs> no. Um, in fact, I gave up most of – I had the idea that I was going to make it as a rock journalist. And yeah. at my peak, I was making about $300 a month. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't working. Um, <laughs> Strangely. So, you know, my living circumstances changed and I had to get a job that I could – afford to pay rent. And so I got into community journalism working at a paper in San Rafael. So let's talk a little bit about community journalism since you brought it up. And since I noticed that you still have, uh, not in your book so much, but a lot of your journalism, mm-hmm. it's still got a community focus. You still write for local. That was just my so computer. you know, I just that was listened. my computer. I just listened to a podcast where that happened a bunch of times. And I was like, Oh, it happens to everyone. <laughs> um, but it derailed my train of thought. Um, Getting into community journalism, was that a fluke or was that something that you believed in at the time? Um, both, although I kind of didn't know what I was doing. And I, so? I learned I love on it. the job. Um, 
Well, first when I was brought in, they were asking me to edit other people's stuff, and wow. I learned. Oh, really? By 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 editing other people's mm-hmm. stuff, that how like the basic building blocks of what goes into, um, you know, covering a city council meeting or mm-hmm. writing about that car crash that happened down the street. <clears throat> Although we were a weekly, so most of the time we could not write about the sort of breaking news stuff. We had to look at the bigger mm. picture. I feel like that's a strength of. Working in the we, working in the community newspapers is that you do get that chance to learn on the job. Mm-hmm. And there's really no uh, substitute for that. But you're back in San, Sonoma County now. <laughs> she didn't get that far away. Went to the big city, Santa Rosa. <laughs> um, you mean San Rafael? San Rafael. Oh, sorry. Oh, look what he did. Oh, bad. <laughs> And San Rafael's not in Sonoma. No, no, I know. Okay, I was I was operating under the assumption it was Santa Rosa. Gotcha. Whole S-R. time. Yeah. See. Yep. Yeah. No, I never covered Santa Rosa. Probably good. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a baffling place. <laughs> I mean, that's what makes it so interesting. Really. But from there, you move on, and and so while you're working there, you're not. Are you freelancing? Are you allowed to freelance? Yeah, I was still freelancing for. Um, a couple of publications. The last one that I was writing for regularly, I think, um, was one called Rocker Girl, which oh, was like a magazine it. specifically focusing on women musicians, but not as women as musicians. Mm-hmm. Like, you would ask them, what kind of gear are you using? Like, mm-hmm. what's your stage setup? Mm-hmm. You know, what's touring like? You know, very... Um, Same questions you'd ask yeah. anyone yeah. who's a shop, musician. Shop talk, shop talk. for women. <clears throat> um, and that's, I did a lot of pieces for them. That sounds really fun. It was a good pe- good place to write. So this is, are we talking right around 2000? Is that where we are in time? And so now you write Sacred Sonoma alongside. Now, how did that come about? <laughs> and how does that figure in? First, Wait, is that your first book? Um, Weren't you anthologized Let's say yes. That? Okay. Yeah. Um, first explain to listeners what that book was about. And then explain to us how it sort of fit in your big plan at this point. Or was there a big plan? <laughs> There's no big plan. There never has been. Um, I'm trying to remember. So I actually wrote that book originally when I was at Berkeley mm. um, because I just, like, I kind of went through a witchy period. And, it's pretty new agey, yeah. And a lot of these places in Sonoma County have, like, really cool spooky history um, ghost stories, Native American stories. I don't know. It's just a weird place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started researching and then at the same time looking at these people in England who've looked at alignments of sites that are a thousand years old and theorizing that there's energy that comes out of the ground and so on and so forth. Oh, I know all about this. Anyway, um, while I was at Berkeley, I had access to their interlibrary loan program, which is great if you need to research obscure wow. California history or obscure English history. Um, so or I the combination a, of the two. Or the combination <laughs> of the two. So that's where that came from. And the funny thing is, so I, peop, I had it online, and people kept saying, would you make a print book? Would you make a print book? And I finally did with, you know, revisions and updates and all that stuff. And it's actually still my best-selling book. Really? That's people incredible. buy it all the time. Have, but where do they buy it? Online, oh, Amazon. Amazon. Oh, yeah. so great. Since, since we opened that door, um, let's talk about the books. And you have <clears throat> written, I've read them all off at the beginning, but I'm seeing five plus a bunch that were all, you were in, included in anthologies. Mm-hmm. How many of those have you independently published? Uh, 
except for the anthologies, all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I take that back. The very first one was published by a friend of mine that like did zines and chapbooks and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, but it's out of print now for that reason. So, so you were kind of on the cutting edge of independent uh, yeah. publishing. Yeah. But so explain, was that a decision born of necessity or a decision born of a desire to be part of that? Both. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of what I've written is not very mainstream or saleable. Um, the only book that I really seriously shopped was my last one, which was The Columbine Effect. Mm-hmm. And I had so many agents going this is such a great book. We need this book right now, but I don't know how to sell it because you've put like heavy metal and video games in the same book and who's going to buy something with all those things in it. (laughs) Wow. When you you do that proposal, who do you say your audience is? Parents and, you know, Gen Xers who grew up during that period where Mm -hmm. Tipper Gore and the Senate were like, PRNC, was that it? Yes. Uh, all of those people were like, this music is dangerous for young minds. And it was the same thing as like the comic books in the 50s. It, it's so funny to me. To me, heavy metal and video games, those are part of the just 80s culture. Right. Like the mm-hmm. same thing. Well, they're, they're part of the – they're, they're yeah, overlapping the culture. cultures now. Yeah. When I – part of my research for that book, I put out surveys, you know, one on heavy metal, one on video games, and one on um, pagan culture. And there were people that did two of them or three of them because, like, these are all part of their lives. Right. Well, so I did a really bad job of explaining the content of that book in the uh-huh. open. So can you can you restate what it, kind of your mission statement for that one? Well, so the, my tagline for it is how Satanism, Slayer, and Grand Theft Auto can be a healthy part of growing up. Um, <laughs> how does that? How does an agent any, not buy that? Any parent <laughs> would jump at that book. <laughs> but it was really born out of the fact that between the Columbine shootings, and pr- probably until Sandy Hook, um, you had a lot of people going, well, this kid played Call of Duty 12 hours a day. Right. That, of course, that's made the problem. Him. That's the problem. Or, you know, <laughs> they were listening to too much Slayer, or it was Marilyn Manson, or, you know, looking in all these obscure places to try to solve the problem. For an easy answer. For an easy answer. Yeah. And there is no easy answer. Mm-hmm. And I think we're coming closer to understanding that as a culture now. Um, but even at the time that this book was written, I was writing it between like 2010 and 2013, we were still pointing fingers in all sorts of bizarre places. Oh, for sure. And the point was, these things are not harming kids. They're actually probably keeping them from being more aggressive than they could be. And so when you go into to write a book like this, what do you hope is the end result of writing this book? Because it seems like you could have gone into it with some pretty altruistic ideas, things that you would hope for. Well, I hope that teens will be harassed less for the kinds of things that they're into. One of the messages of the book is, and I found this again and again with the people that I interviewed, and, Mm -hmm. you know, you said your own kid, blows off steam that way. Like, kids know where their limits are. They know what they're doing with the material most of the time. Um, They know what they're getting out of it. They know it's not harming them. And if there's something that's too much, that they'll avoid it. Um, You know, I talked to a lot of people who are like, I couldn't listen to that metal band. It was too violent or gross Mm -hmm. for me. Same thing with video games. Mm -hmm. Like, they all had their stopping point. It's Uh, also, I mean, it's easy to see, for example, in your new book, Tenacity, uh, young women, for example, in Egypt, whose parents are not allowing them to just be in a band. Right. Just to be... 
part well, of that. And some... it, it's hurtful to, to read as as a woman, as a yeah. parent, as a young, young woman who was in a band, all of those things. And to just be able to take that model and apply it to ourselves. Given yeah. some of the things that you described happened to people <clears throat> applying the metal trade in <laughs> Egypt and Syria, I don't blame them for not wanting their kids to be in a band. Right, but it's different there than here. Completely, and you have yeah. people here, like, burning their kids' Slayer records or, you know, there was, like, a bonfire after Columbine where people were oh, burning yeah. Marilyn Manson CDs. And it's like... That's not the problem. Well, we, we always want it to be that simple. And we have yeah. a long history of burning records. It's yeah. true. We burn Beatles <laughs> records. We burn everything. Well, and it's and really a lot of good has come of it. So. Burning stuff? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I From the beginning. So. Sure. Yay, climate change, greenhouse <laughs> gases and pollution. <laughs> like the bonfires of the- At what cost? No slayer. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It well, speaking as a longtime Catholic, the bonfire of the vanities is a long tradition in my <laughs> So, yeah. So back to the, the mode of publishing. When you decided with um, – let, let's, let, let's use Colin Byte Effect as an example because okay. I think that book got some good traction mm-hmm. once it came out. Mm-hmm. Once you were faced with this reality that you were going to have to do this, what was the next step you took? Well, so by then I had done several books. Mm-hmm. Um and even though, like, it, that one was frustrating because I thought it had a chance with a bigger publisher. For sure. Um, but in general, like, I enjoy doing the page design, the book cover design. You know why? Because you're competent. I know. So competent. <laughs> also because I'm a little bit of a control freak. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know the quote exactly, but Anais Nin talked about self-publishing some of her own work early on. She's like... I really just like having control over the production from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, and to some extent, I agree with that. You know, I, mm-hmm. when I was in college and early newspapers, I was doing a lot of page design. I learned how to make something look nice and make it look the way I wanted it to look. And, you know, if you go with another publisher, they will probably make it look nice, but it might, might not be what you hoped it would be. No, I don't can be just the opposite. necessarily want to use this word, but I can't think of another. Um, did you worry about the stigma of self-publishing. How hard is it to cross that bridge? Um, I do worry about it sometimes, um, and I'm even dealing it, with it with this one because I'm getting it into stores. Um, I'm working well because I'm going to be at Writers with Drinks next month. Yeah, and they just email me and they're like, "We can't get your book. Can you bring copies?" So now I have to order copies. But so that happens uh, to everyone, no yeah. matter what. Yeah. I, I think it's becoming much less of a stigma and much less of a oh, hurdle. I agree. I agree. In terms of managing how you're going to get your book somewhere, but how people I, are going to get your book. I do remember <clears throat> being vetted at that table out there. Yeah. With my little unpublished. No more. Pointing to lunch, in the general direction of the lunchroom. Yeah, and it's bringing up self-publishing and a bunch of oh no 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 you don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, older but older writers probably old school. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there is it. It makes it harder to sell your books in some places, mm-hmm. yeah. but the way that the publishing industry is now. You don't you don't get a lot of help from your publisher anyway exactly. with things like publicity, book tours, exactly. and that was et my next that was my next question. How yeah. when you go into I've got a new book, I published it myself, now I gotta sell it. Mm-hmm. How hard was it to develop a marketing plan? And how, <laughs> how how much of a plan is that marketing plan? Well again, there's no plan. Um, <laughs> and with this one specifically, uh, and I'm pointing at tenacity here, um, 
I put it together mostly because I'd been writing about these things for a long time, and I thought it would be kind of neat to have it all in one package for people who have not read all of the pieces or maybe read one or didn't realize that, like this has been a theme in my career over the years. Um, so it was more like, let's just get it out there. And then I realized, oh, I should probably publicize it a little bit at least. So while we're, <laughs> on, the, uh, while we're on the pu- publicizing side, let's say again that Writers with Drinks is July 14th. Where uh, uh, the makeout room in uh, San Francisco, twenty yeah. second admission. Mm-hmm. Uh, doors are at six thirty, and the show is at seven. Everyone wants to get there at six thirty because that's the drinks part. And the guest host is going to be uh, Carol Queen, who's the oh. legendary sex author in the Bay Area. And I'm told that it's going to be her birthday that night. Oh my god, this is like SF gold and yeah. Bastille Day. Oh, and Bastille Day and Bastille Day. Okay, where red, white, and blue? What day of the week? <laughs> and explain that? yourself. It's a Saturday. It is a Saturday. Hey, yeah. big time. Um, so marketing has been sort of take it as it comes. Mm-hmm. And do you think, have you been successful in that way? Um, I did a lot of stuff in particular for Columbine. Um, podcasts and radio interviews. A lot of uh, people interviewing me for various online sites. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps that I have a pretty wide media network at this point and a lot of people exactly. who you know they're looking for something to write about anyway so again the dirty secret of journalism what am i going to write about who can i call yeah and also reaching out to people that you know who are looking That's for stuff i mean, I mean yeah. yeah exactly exactly um you should ask the new yorker <laughs> i was just going to bring up the new yorker because <laughs> why wouldn't you let, let's talk about the new book let's talk about tenacity okay which does seem to seem to be a culmination um, a little culmination. It's only what you say, about 15,000 words? Yeah, about. A little, little culmination you can carry around in your pocket. Um, that sounds naughty. Of something you've <laughs> been working toward for a while. I'm getting the face and the You got the wave, brush the dismissive off. wave. <laughs> um, at what point did you go from being uh, a metal critic, I guess, and which I always feel like when you're a music critic, because I did a lot of that too, it wasn't metal, I'm afraid. Um, it's because you're a fan. Yeah. At what mm-hmm. point did you go from that to being sort of an an analyst, someone who's taking applying your your degree in sociology right. and looking at it, an anthropologist almost? Well, it's funny because when I was at Berkeley, uh, Marilyn Manson was really big at the time. This was like '94 to '96, and I thought maybe someday I'll be able to write not metal. No. Borderline. Really? Borderline. Okay. Sort of like goth industrial. I heard metal. him on Marin. Really not crazy at all. Does not no. surprise me. No. He's a sensible guy. Kind of funny. But so I thought someday I'll be able to write books about why bands like that have mm-hmm. such an emotional cultural resonance when they do. Was that always the way you approached music? Was it always something bigger than I like this song? More like, what does this mean? Why does it appeal to me? Why would it appeal to anyone? I'm not really sure when um, when I started thinking about it that way. Probably not in my teen years, um, but not long after. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, when something makes me feel a certain way, I wonder mm-hmm. about other people and whether they're feeling the same way. So, again, from like a cultural context, I wonder... 
Like, why does this weird guy who has, you know, one brown eye and one blue eye and scary makeup, like, why are people listening why, to that? Why not? You know, why, why are do they so love him many so? people into it? Because, and, you know, on the other hand, you had people freaking out that kids were into this kind of music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's helpful to sort of break that down for people, I uh, guess. What have you found is either the value of or the impetus behind the freak out part? You know, I mean, you could have decided you loved folk music or you could, have, you know, you could have decided you love pop music, but it doesn't have that element of part of this is that we're kind of scary. People adopt scary exteriors because they are afraid. Um, and that's that's a really reductionist perspective. But like if you're feeling really tender Either you're a sensitive person or you've been picked on or you want your parents to leave you alone or whatever. Like looking scary is one way Mm. to deflect some of that. That is so well said. Yeah. So they're not going to get to me again because look at me now. Mm -hmm. They're going to run All right. You think I'm a freak and an outcast? Guess what? Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things I wrote about in Columbine is like there are kids who are really, you know, they're playing with Satanism or um, paganism of some sort. And then – I read this other book um, by Donna Gaines, who's a really great cultural critic. She was talking about kids that she saw who would carry, like, the Church of Satan book around. Oh, yeah. Not because they believed in it, but because people would leave them alone if they did. Mm-hmm. I remember kids like that. Yeah. 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 And uh, both are valid. It, I mean, both are valid, but. <clears throat> it's when punks adopted swastikas. Mm-hmm. They weren't Nazis. Or Mohawks. Or Mohawks, yeah, yeah. on a lesser level. Okay, so I got a little far afield there, but so you were evolving from a critic into a, a, an anthropologist, a sociologist, looking at the cultural yeah, impacts. Kinda. But also digging the music. Yeah. And that eventually takes you out of the U.S. Mm-hmm. and looking at it as a global sort of thing. And what do you find? Well, so when I was writing Columbine, I started, um, I forget how I came across this, but I started learning about um, different cultures that were still cracking down on metal. Um, arresting like hundreds of people at a time or um, profiling people because they had long hair or arresting bands that were playing on stage. Um, Just for being heavy metal. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's really the same thing as here where it's what we call a moral panic where we create a hysteria around something uh, that's based in morality and it seems like we are doing something about a problem, quote, unquote, um, mm-hmm. here it, we had a lot of these moral panics around school shootings, but in the Middle East, it's like, oh, the government is doing something stupid. Well, let's make it look like we're doing something about this problem of heavy metal. <laughs> I just the non-problem this, of heavy metal. <clears throat> I just had this picture in my head of like Syrian police going to break up a metal show and one of them stops and goes, it's just Bon Jovi. <laughs> it's not actually metal. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> right. But it can be dangerous. I mean, I, I and I, I might be saying completely the wrong thing here. So step in as the aware person. But um, in Norway, in I believe the early 90s, maybe the late 80s, there was a group of pagan kids who I think were allied with heavy metal who went around burning down medieval mm-hmm, w- wooden mm-hmm. churches um, to get Christianity out of Norway, which is, seems so crazy. Um, but, I mean, that's pretty bad. Like cultural patrimony that's a 1,000 years old being yeah. lost is bad empirically in my well, belief system. Well, and the guy that fostered some of that is – you know, a racist nut job who's been in prison also for very bad. terrorist threats. Um, so <laughs> it, it doesn't help to have examples like that to point to. No. Right. And, and how much of this is about religion? 
a lot of it is about religion. Um, most of the time, the laws that metalheads overseas are arrested under are things like blasphemy laws or anti-Satanism oh, laws. And so they'll get arrested, they'll be brought in, and they'll be questioned, like, what would you do if you had a cat? Like, leading them to say, <laughs> I would torture the cat like any good Satanist would. Like, not you mean my that. familiar? Right, exactly. So, like, and, and it was funny, the number of people I talked to, they're like, why are they asking me about cats? Oh, so interesting. <laughs> so it's a, I feel like there's some sort of, like, law enforcement sharing of resources. And there was right. there was this thing in look the for. 80s, too. I remember um, this, yeah. Uh, which is a whole other story. There were police in the 80s in, in America training other police officers what to look for for Satanism and kids. I remember this. Well, but if you remember, I don't actually know if you're old enough to remember the Satan panics. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the preschool in Los yes. Angeles? Um, I forget the name of it, but... It was horrible. They had uncovered a ring of Satanic sexual practices at a preschool. On children. And it turned out it was all lies. Yeah. But people ate it up. Yeah. Because that's, oh, that's, that's how we get the West Memphis Three, right? Yeah. People want to see that stuff. Yeah. Well, because it's it's so... It's our worst nightmare. Yeah. Evil is very rooted in our culture as a concept. And, you know, we want to fight it every time we find it. Yeah. And you know what else is very rooted in our concept? I knew it. <laughs> yeah. And also yeah. just the idea that it's the devil makes it so easy. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's not us. It's mm-hmm. not our culture. Mm-hmm. It's if, not what we how we treat each other. If you were... A 90-year-old church lady, you saw Marilyn Manson. That right. would look like the devil to you. You know Probably. what's changing, though? And I think I've been thinking about this a lot lately since I am one of those Gen Xers now in my 50s. Yeah. That that's going to not be the case. Right. It's going like, to be different. It, it's, we, we've seen a lot of counterculture in, mm-hmm. Our, mm-hmm. in our life. So what's it going to be like? And I have to say, one of the things I think that makes me feel the most old lady is walking down the street with the tech people talking about like amortize. Oh, I don't know what they talk about platforming, digital hubbing, whatever it is. <laughs> I feel such a reaction and such a strong sense of like I want to shame them oh. and <laughs> uh, and repulsion and disgust and like that's what the, right. it's just going to look different. It's just going right. to cycle back and forth, right? But what's I mean, what's true of any subculture, including tech bro subculture, is that there's like a, a common language. Right. Yeah. That you speak with each other. But it's also no different than culture. than everyone having like mohawks and leather jackets and whatever else when I was in my late teens in my little group, like they all have giant beards and super trimmed hair mm-hmm. and yeah, small t shirts and it's called they can buy houses. I know, but that's the part that enrages me partly. But they make money. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh you get all of it, that. you get it all? <laughs> no, no, no. It's, you get to think you're cool, go to shows and make money? Right. And smoke pot and be whatever and be a libertarian and not blah, 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 and have the money. No. BQ. Not acceptable. <clears throat> there's only room for one sociologist in the crowd. <laughs> I have no sociological training. Just my, like, get off my lawn bitchiness. Beth. Yes. You clearly have a lot invested in the world of metal. Mm-hmm. So... How, how should I focus this? You, and you have a lot invested being a woman in the world of metal. Mm-hmm. So how does that – how do you fit that into your professional worldview of metal? What do you, what do, you do? This book's about – Oh, because you're saying because uh, metal's a little misogynist or – Beth said that. Yeah, okay. But I mean is that what the question is kind of? Well, yeah. And, 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 is, and how do you deal with something you love so much knowing that it could be changed? Well – Are you the one to do it? Probably not. It's a big um, job. <laughs> it is a big job. So, you know, I have written 
a couple of essays in the past about uh, misogyny in the culture. And A, where do those get published and B, how does that go over? Um, the ones that I wrote were for a wonderful little metal blog called Invisible Oranges. Oh, yeah, I've seen um, that in your Which byline. might seem like a very strange title for a heavy metal blog. But And I'm going to make a gesture here, but if you do this classic heavy metal gesture. It looks like you're holding. <laughs> it looks like you're holding invisible oranges. <laughs> wow. We might need a picture of that. That is pretty awesome. Oh, yeah, for Instagram. Okay. Keep talking and then we're going to take a picture. <laughs> so um, to answer your question. Give me invisible oranges. If you, <laughs> if right. you look up my <laughs> name on invisible oranges, you'll find a couple of posts. Um, and it's funny because I've been fr- – it's had a number of editors over the years – uh, I think I wrote one of the pieces back in 2011, and every time I see him, he was like, I'm still, like, flagging comments on that post from people who are like, how dare you talk about yeah. there's room for women in this community? Oh, that's interesting. Well, and I wonder how that how that would guide, in a sort of vague way, uh, guide what you write. There is something you can always write about that will always get a response. Mm-hmm. Is that intriguing? Um. <laughs> Or because the response is usually so vehemently against you. I have been lucky in the sense that uh, the amount of trolling that I have experienced as a woman who writes on these subjects is relatively minimal. Oh. Um, Like, I'm not getting attacked on Twitter every day, and I'm grateful for that. Definitely. Um, It makes my my quality of life a lot better than some of the people I know. (laughs) Right. Um, And I could tell stories, but I'm not going to. And you were also an early... Uh, internet person. Very early, yeah. And I think I've either read or heard you tell stories of hijinks in the early chat rooms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. It's like I've learned to deflect so much of it that, you know, right. it doesn't get to me in the way that um, – and, and I don't mean that in the sense of like being sensitive to it because I'm still sensitive to it. But I think the fact that I am so used to it um, – I think it doesn't happen because I'm not I'm not reacting to it at all. Mm-hmm. That's wise. But um, your question was being about being a woman and a heavy metal fan. Yeah, and sort of, and I don't want to use responsibility. I always say I don't want to use, and then I use it. Um, I don't want to really characterize it as a responsibility, more of an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, how you deal with that? Well. Most of the time, I'm just a, you know, I just see myself as a person going to shows or a person listening to music. One of the nice things about that piece I mentioned a minute or two ago was that um, it was my first online music piece in quite a while. And particularly since Twitter started uh, being a thing. And all of a sudden, I had all these new followers, many of whom are women metal journalists. That's so cool. Or supportive men. And I all of a sudden had a brand new community of people who are super supportive. Um, so that's been very helpful. And show, share your language, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, it's nice to have a language where you can talk about things in a kind of shorthand where everyone gets what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And when you write something like Tenacity or something about metal, an article, um, because you care about it so much, does it carry a special weight rather than writing about um, I'm trying to find, remember the name of the woman that you wrote about for Law 360, the trial where... Oh, Ellen Powell. Yeah, yeah. Mm, that was really interesting. Is it a labor of love when you write about metal? Um, it's not even a labor, really. Um, it's one of those topics where 
I just get ideas and I get super excited and I'm writing something before I realize it. Right. Although I would say that Ellen Powell is not a great comparison because I got really emotionally oh. invested in that trial mm-hmm. more than I, I think see that. Yeah. any other. Um, and I've written stuff about her since then that came from that kind of personal place. Uh, she was a big catalyst for change in the in the Bay Area, I think. Well, Definitely. And I feel like you got some good uh, – it raised your profile writing about that. Mm-hmm. I think that helped you out. Um, I'd like to know about the bands that you've written about in Tenacity. How have they received the book or the articles? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I mean, know some of the stories, but. <clears throat> well, um, they've all been really positive. I mean. I can imagine. Uh, coverage of heavy metal in these places is really limited in a variety mm-hmm. of ways. Um, there is, there are a couple of good little magazines online that um, write about bands from the region and they're great too. Check in on one is called Jorzine, J O R Z I N E. And then there's another one called Metality, M E T A L I T Y, um, that just fo- focus exclusively on bands um, in the Middle East and to some extent Northern Africa, I think. And that's where, um, you know, there's a piece in here from The New Yorker where I interviewed women in metal bands who also happen to be Muslim. And sort of looking at those intersections. Mm-hmm. Um, I found all of those people just by looking through these magazines and finding the ones that, that had women in them and emailing them and saying, will you talk Isn't to me? Isn't that amazing? Definitely. I, I think the tenacity is not just from the people in the book. I think it's from the person who wrote the book, which leads <laughs> me to my next question. Before we started recording, or maybe even when we were doing the intro, I was telling Bridget, like, Beth publishes in all these places I've never heard of. <laughs> How do you find all these markets? Um, Except the New Yorker. He had heard of them. I had heard of that, yeah. <laughs> well, I heard about Invisible Oranges, for example. Um, a friend of mine had sent me one of their articles, and they'd had an opera vocal coach analyze the singing styles of like Rob Halford, Judas Priest (laughs) and a few others. And I'm like, this is the most fascinating writing I've ever read. And I just kept reading them and then eventually started writing for them. That's the best way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a few of them are places like that. You know, uh, Pop Matters is another one that I've been Mm -hmm. in a couple of times. Um, They're just known in music writing circles as, you know, a place to to be in and to read because um, mm-hmm. they do that sort of in-depth, thoughtful writing that I was more interested in doing because after 15 years of writing CD reviews, I was really tired of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's – that's you asked earlier, like, what was the switch between critic. just being a critic to being sort of a cultural writer? And it was partly because I was getting bored. You got bored. And at this point, now that you have exposed yourself to all these great unknown metal bands, is there any room in your life for Iron Maiden or Metallica? Of course. Okay. But um, one of the funny things about – I mean, people go, is there still metal around? Because I don't hear it on the radio and I don't see it on MTV. Are people still listening to the radio? Um, And the thing is, like, because I know other metal Mm -hmm. writers, I'm hearing about, you know – Hey, you should check this out. They made right. like this mm-hmm. 600 copies of this tape and it's really good. Um, but you know, there are certain writers that I follow and they do the work of listening to all the mm-hmm. bands that come out every month and they pick the 15 or 20 best and then I listen to those and go from there. And it often winds up being obscure, not because I want to be into the most obscure thing ever, but just because that's 
That's because you have your ear to the ground. Yeah. Right. And it, it, are they obscure enough that you've become a resource for them? Well, I find that I am turning people on to bands that they haven't heard about, but it's more like people who haven't been a part of the scene for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's, you know, there's all levels of, of obscurity and I'm kind of in the middle. <laughs> Is there a local metal scene in San Francisco? Are there shows to go to? Um, you get to go to the East Bay? There are definitely shows to go to. Um, there's less of a scene in San Francisco than there used to be. And that is partly because of the age-old story that mm-hmm. nobody can afford, afford to, to live, live here. here anymore. Right. Um, I did see an article recently. Uh, I feel like it was about a metal community in the Far East Bay. And I'm sorry, I, I can't be I, more specific. I read that, too. I was yeah. just going to say that. Yeah. How far out? Where was that? That was really like good. Like Tracy or something? Mm. Like Dublin, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, like Pleasanton, yeah. Lafayette, somewhere. I, I, this is so bizarre. I could have – I've read that article mm-hmm. too. I could have sworn you wrote it. <laughs> you would think. Where, I wonder <laughs> where we both read that. Like a, a bunch of suburban kids? Mm-hmm. That's funny because – But it sounded like – it almost sounded like the old punk rock days. Like we were I was going to say, I, I always assumed those kids were playing yeah. punk in the garages because it's yeah. cheaper. But it's like that. It's like they're, you know – all these local kids who have a kids, young people, whatever, locals who have bands and there's a place yeah. they go where they play and everyone knows that yeah. these nights are metal nights. And Well, and, you know, in the 80s, San Francisco was the birthplace of thrash metal, really. Right. Um, although, you know, one of the most important bands in that was Metallica and they were living in El Sobrante. So they were kind right. of East right. Bay band anyway. Um, but it did kind of move from being San Francisco-centric to East Bay, but now all the East Bay warehouses are clo- closing, partly because of fire danger mm-hmm. and partly because of uh, development and So where are they going to go now? They can't go to San Jose. Modesto? Pretty soon, yeah. the outer suburbs are going to be the most radical places in America. Exactly. It's where all the artists are going to be. Mm-hmm. It's where all the – everything's going to be like that. Yeah. I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, Beth, we're almost out of time, but I do have one very important question to ask you. Be afraid, Beth. I'll ask both of you. It's one of my favorite questions, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tailor it to both of you. Who's the best female front woman in the history of rock and roll? Pause follows. Now, I know my answer, but it's not going to be liked. My instinct is to stay Stevie Nicks. Stevie Nicks. Who would you say? Definitely not Stevie Nicks, just because that kind of music I don't understand. Well, we're uh, Beth's divorcing herself okay. from her judgment of the music itself. No, but now I'm all intrigued. Charismatic. Like, I need to re-listen. Okay, so I would say, honestly, uh, Patti Smith, um, uh, uh, strictly uh, as wait performer. Wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Was she part of a group? Yes, Patti Smith yeah. group. Patti Smith group, all right. Don't even, don't even start with that. <laughs> I, you know, I always say Courtney Love. Everyone gets mad at me. I no, think I think Love was a great front Hole woman. was a great band. I absolutely loved them. I, no Chrissy Hine, kind of boring, actually. I love Chrissy Hine. I'm not going to go there either. And actually, I mean, I love X, as everyone knows, and Xene, I think, is amazing, but definitely not one of the best front women of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I need to... I, because uh, Fleetwood Mac has come up a bunch and I, in my life recently. <laughs> you need to revisit. I need to just Fleetwood find out Mac. what I'm missing. Stevie yeah. Nicks. She huh? is kind of a perfect, and I feel like even though she's a very much a pop performer, there's a but there's a hard performer. rock there's a hard rock edge to her um, that I think she did that what, Tom Petty duet. Where yeah, she definitely held her own as like. I'm wondering though if, if, if her and Exine, neither was the sole front person of their band. So, so they don't count. Like when we say guys, 
it's always, you know, mine was Freddie Mercury. I would, I mean, Freddie Mercury is Like, he's the there. one you can't take your eyes off of, yeah. right? And Stuart O'Nan said <laughs> Iggy Pop. Vehemently said Iggy Pop. Yeah. Oh, I would go for Iggy Pop. Yeah. I, I'm going to be persuadable in all of these, I think. I think we're also overlooking a lot of bands like Slater Kinney and Bikini Kill. I mean, they were. I don't know if they're front women stand out. We're, we're looking Wanda Jackson, the Rockabilly mm-hmm. Philly, too. <laughs> there's some pretty good, there's some pretty good ones. And did Loretta Lynn have a band? Everyone ignores country music. I mean, if you want to talk no. about the most Tammy Wayne, influential, amazing. you got to go to Sister Rosetta Tharp. No, oh, just the best, the most. You know, when I, I figure if I say Freddie what Mercury, that kind mean? of well, that kind of wraps it up, right? Although I really want to see that movie. Oh yeah, totally. I really want to see it. We've gone far afield though. Now I forgot we were still podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we usually how we usually talk about stuff. Let's wrap it up with Beth telling us all the places you can find her on the World Wide Web. This information superhighway. Well, the best place to go is my website, BethWeingarner.com. Spell Weingarner, please. W-I-N-E-G-A-R-N-E-R. Okay. It's just like it sounds. I bet people somehow mess it up anyway. Um, also, all my books for are available for sale on Amazon. Yes, they're all there, uh, including the ones that are anthologized, I checked. And I think a lot of them are on IndieBound. Uh, yes. And the Powells, if you don't want to support Amazon, which I totally understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, IndieBound has, uh, I think, a lot you of You got them. the um, Twitter and the uh, Instagram? Um, my Instagram is not public because I post pictures of my child it's a on it. Instagram. But um, Twitter is Beth underscore Weingartner. Okay. And she's got that check mark thing that oh, lets you know sweet. she's the bomb. We Verified, know yes. No fakes. How no about. You, Ms. Uh, you can find me at B Quintrest on Instagram and Twitter or at BridgetQuinnAuthor.com. You, uh, you can find me at that Larry Rosen, Instagram and Twitter, and the website for my other podcast, of course, is it good for the Jews? Dot com. How about us here at the Grotto Pod? We're all here in the same room. I know. It's so nice. Uh, you can send us email at thegrottopod at gmail.com. You know what's funny is we always screw it up sometime, and Beth is here to correct us. <laughs> it's at uh, thegrottopod at gmail, right? Or is it Grotto Pod? I can't remember. Oh, this is the problem. We have the same problem. We have the same time. problem every Try week. both, people. Grotto- go, go to grottopod.com and connect with us there. Yes, yeah. well said. Follow us on Twitter at the Grotto Pod. Follow us on Instagram at the Grotto oh, you guys Pod. Instagram is brand Instagram. new. You can see a picture good. of Beth doing the invisible, invisible oranges. oranges pose. Yes. <laughs> uh, I believe that is all for No, we need to thank our producers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Beth Weingartner. Hey! What? Present and accounted I for. I know, so awesome. Lee Kravitz, Lorianne Doyle, and our partners, the San Francisco Public Library. Yes, and we're getting very close to our July 24th presentation with Matthew Zapruder. Matthew Zapruder. People tell us about his favorite book it's at the library. It's going to be so good. Come to the library. It's so fun. Beth, was there last time? Was it fun? It was, it was awesome. Fun. Our it was next, our, who's our other partner? Oh, our other partner is Babylon Salon, That's right. San Francisco's premier literary series, which I can vouch for because last time was fantastic. We were there, and the next uh, one is coming up in September, so we'll keep you apprised. Yep. I think Tommy Orange is going to be there. Which oh my god, be pretty it's going to be awesome. so good! I I'm going to beg wait. him to come on the podcast. That's all yes. I got to say. Beth, you got anything to say? Uh, just another pitch for Writers with Drinks, July fourteenth, seven thirty at the Makeout Room, and then you'll have ten days to recover from that and go to the thing at the library. Exactly. We're done talking, BQ. That's a great July. But I think you've got one more thing to say. Here's all I want to say. Read, write, and just keep working.